Welcome to Energy Unplugged, your go-to podcast focusing on the global energy transition. I'm Oliver Kerr, Aurora's Managing Director for North America. My guest today is Andy Bowman. If there's one thing I know about Andy, it's that he's a man that wears many hats. A lawyer by training, he is a serial clean energy entrepreneur, currently the CEO of grid-scale battery storage company Jupiter Power. He is an adjunct professor at UT Austin Law School, and he is the author of the book, The West Texas Power Plant That Saved the World, which I'm looking forward to digging into a little today. Andy, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So one thing that really struck me about reading your book was the extent to which the energy transition has really been something of a central theme right throughout your life. You know, certainly it's been the focus of your career, but even before that, at a very young age, you talk about how your experience growing up uh, not too far from here in Galveston, Texas, really started you down this path. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that anybody who, who grows up on an island um, has a special awareness of, you know, Mother Nature and especially, you know, how powerful uh she can be uh and especially when things are going wrong um galveston is is kind of famous for um the hurricanes that that come through the gulf of mexico um in the book i talk about how growing up in galveston the the story of the 1900 storm and then mm -hmm. the response to the storm that followed um is pretty much everywhere um you know mm -hmm. you you learn about it at school and at the library and all kinds of uh, you know, other places. And um, I think that really orients anyone um, to keeping an eye on the weather and being aware of changes and, uh, and having a special awareness about the bad things that can happen. Totally. And I, I suppose you started out your career as a lawyer, but very quickly you joined a wind energy startup. I think this was in the late 1990s. Uh, and not long after you started your own business with a couple of friends. Uh, I, I suspect it's hard to imagine for folks today looking back, but at the time, wind energy in the U.S. was basically non-existent. We're, we're talking a you know one two gigawatts max of installed capacity. Uh, so here you come, you know, basically touring the country, trying to sell landowners, investors on this idea of how they could make money from this. I, I suppose what was an outlandish new technology at the time. I'm curious what some of those early conversations were like. You know, the the wind business started in the U.S. Um, in the in the kind of, you know, late 80s and, and early 90s. Um, there was a company called Kinetech um, that had uh, taken over for U.S. wind power. And um, there had been several projects built in places like Vermont and California. Um, mm -hmm. But that wave of of, uh, of growth in the industry kind of died in the in the mid 90s. Um, and it wasn't a very sustainable model. You know, looking at um, the passage of the investment tax credit or the production tax credit mm -hmm. um, in the in the early 90s, that kind of set the industry on a different trajectory. And um, the first project that I was involved with was out in West Texas, a project called Southwest Mesa. And um, the the conversations that we had to have with landowners and with government officials about the type of project that we wanted to build there 
when there really weren't any others to, to point at. There was one project uh, way out in further West Texas that was actually a Kinetech project. Um, but um, but that was that was kind of it for, you know, um, uh, many, many hours drive in, in any direction. <laughs> um, and so talking to people about wanting to uh, build the types of machines that we had in mind um, was very difficult. Um, people, of course, in that part of the country knew about wind power. They knew about windmills. But yeah. the type of turbines that we were talking about on 60, 70, 80 meter towers, um, you know, tens or hundreds of them, um, and putting them where it was windiest on on top of the mesas out in West Texas, mm. it was you know, it was uh, very surreal. Um, and we were lucky that I think people took us seriously. You know, after working on the first projects in Texas, uh, we started working in other parts of the country. And we did, um, you know, land development in Oregon and Colorado and New Mexico, um, Pennsylvania and Alabama and Georgia, all over Texas. And, uh, People, you know, just as a matter of course, had no idea what we were talking about. And we would have to kind of explain, you know, what was involved. Um, but uh, the the legal structure for, you know, getting the land rights that we needed uh, had a had a very attractive royalty clause. And um, the one thing that we could communicate was, you know, even if it was a very new concept for doing something like this on their land, it was something that a landowner could, uh, you know, receive good compensation for and that, you know, that compensation would last for, you know, the leases that we were signing um, were 30 or 40 years or more. Um, so I think they could take some comfort in the fact that if the things that we were talking about were to come to pass, um, it was a good economic proposition for them. Um, and the same from a, a governmental point of view, you know, these were very uh, capital intensive projects and we would be paying a lot of taxes. And so mm -hmm. people tended to give us the benefit of the doubt, but it was a lot of, you know, really long uh, conversations over months and years with, with many of these stakeholders and, uh, and ones where we had to do a lot of education. I, I'm curious if how the extent to which that's got easier today or, or more difficult, I suppose your focus right now is on, on battery storage, which certainly has a smaller land footprint in any case. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, wind project development has has uh, evolved, you know, enormously over the last 25 years or so. Um, it went from being, you know, a brand new concept that it was it was difficult to convey to people, you know, the types of projects that we had in mind, something that's that's pretty well known, and then um, something that uh, has has come to encounter a lot more. Um, Kind of organized resistance in certain mm -hmm. parts of the country. Um, solar was uh, a, a technology that, um, again, we had to have a whole bunch of new conversations with people who had never seen projects like those before. Um, they're very different from uh, from a wind project. It's much more intensive use of land, whereas a, a wind project just has a few turbines, mm -hmm. um, you know, across a large ranch. Um, you know, with with solar panels, you're really, uh, you know, kind of putting them um, very close together, you know, uh, making a lot of other uses of the land difficult. Uh, so having those conversations was, um, 
you know, involved a new level of education to people. Um, solar projects have also come to experience some resistance here and there. Um, and, uh, and now we've been doing energy storage, um, for the last several years at, uh, at Jupiter. And, um, and that also is a very, uh, a very different conversation. Um, a lot of information to landowners and stakeholders about, you know, how these projects work, why they're useful to have the role that they play in, in keeping a grid, you know, in good shape, all of those mm -hmm. kinds of things. So uh, it's been a, 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 a journey and it's kept it interesting for me to have all these different food groups over my career. Yeah. I mean, clearly we've come a long way on that journey. And I think something you stress over and over again in the book though, is, is almost the incomprehensible scale of the, the challenge really. So despite all of the gigawatts of wind and solar and batteries we've installed in the world over the last 20 years, collective efforts still fall short of what's needed to keep us well within the two degree target, let alone the, the 1.5 degree target. I think the metaphor you use in the book is it's a bit like needing to hit a grand slam, but only bunting a single. Uh, can you expand on what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it really is staggering how incredibly successful um, the, the renewable build over the last 25 years has been. Looking backwards today, um, the growth has just been unbelievable. Um, and, and, you know, by, by most measures, one could feel a lot of satisfaction about how much progress has been made. I think uh, all of the growth charts have, have shown, you know, very steeply inclining um, uh, numbers of megawatts and gigawatts um, here in Texas. Uh, you know, over my career, it started with, you know, just a handful of projects here and there. And now we're over 45 gigawatts of, of wind projects. Um, you know, we're on the way up from 10, 15, 20, you know, and up from there, solar projects. There is an enormous amount of wind and solar that uh, remains um, in process to to come into the market here in, in ERCOT. And, uh, and then lately, you know, batteries are are coming on the scene very quickly. And so looking backwards, the progress that we have made has been, you know, really incredible. And I think as as well as anybody could have expected. Um, the problem is that when you look forward, when you look at at the levels of clean energy production that we really need, uh, according to the UNIPCC, you know, any kind of objective analysis to inhibit the the uh, greenhouse gas emissions that's so important to keeping the, the temperature goals within breath um we're just we're just nowhere near where it needs to be and so it's it's a strange place to be to uh have have seen an industry grow so quickly and um and really orient itself for you know uh success on a number of fronts from introducing new technologies to finding new ways to finance projects, to uh, finding the right places to develop them and construct them, to successfully operating them as these new technologies and grids all over the country and North America and the world. I mean, those are incredible accomplishments. On the other hand, um, the level, the amount of new um, clean energy generation that we need is, is just um, vastly more. 
and uh, we're not getting it done quickly enough. Um, so it's, um, you know, it, it's on the one hand, uh, I think everybody that's been doing this kind of work can be, can be proud of, of all the accomplishments. Um, but uh, we've really got to change the way that we're doing things to accomplish much more, a lot more quickly. Having said that, though, I think it's fair to say that you're still an optimist at heart, which perhaps is a nice segue to the the title of the book. So the West Texas power plant that saved the world. So which power plant is it and you know what exactly makes it such a cause for optimism? Yeah. Yep. As um, as much as one can know about uh, the the reality of climate change and kind of the trajectory that we're on, you know, and I know the news yesterday was that the, um, the average global temperature for 2023 was 1.5 degrees Celsius above mm -hmm. pre-industrial levels. And so that's actually the goal that we had under the Paris agreement for, for 2030. Now one year doesn't make or break, you know, a, um, a sustained pattern. And I think there's a lot to uh, lead us to believe that, um, you know, last year with El Nino was an unusually warm year, but it's certainly not a good sign. It's it's a it's a really troubling sign. Um, and there's a lot else I think for us to be concerned about with the the rate of uh, of reduction of greenhouse gas emissions in particular. Um, however, I I am optimistic, and as I write in the book, you know, there's um, so much progress that we've made, and I think the path is really pretty clearly illuminated about um, the things that we need to do and, and our ability to get there. Uh, the heart of the story told in the book is about the Berea solar project, which was a little 14 megawatt solar project um, built in 2014. Um, project of that size, even back in 2014, is, is really not very notable. You know, that's a, that's a pretty small project. Um, and certainly by today's standards, it's, it's even less notable, you know, size-wise. I mean, solar projects at two, 300, 400, 500 megawatts are, are being constructed here and there. And the gross number of megawatts of solar being built um, is, you know, is, is hard to describe still, you know, not just California and Arizona and Texas, uh, very sunny states, but, but all over the rest of the country. But the story that's told there is is kind of about how that happened. And um, Berea is uh, the focus because it is the first solar project to have been built on a on a merchant basis, which is to say, without a long term power purchase agreement in place prior to the project being constructed. Um, that's notable because um, prior to uh, Berea and and solar's ascendancy. Um, the only projects that would be built on spec like that without a long-term power purchase agreement in place were, you know, the most dominant uh, power generation technologies that we had, the most dominant in the market. And, and those were, um, you know, really natural gas. Uh, so the, the appearance of the first solar merchant project I use as an example to make the case that, you know, solar has arrived as the most market dominant um, way to generate power. And in fact, that's, that's what we see today. You know, you can look at many grids around the country and you see an enormous amount of solar preparing to 
make its way, you know, through financing and construction and into operation. Um, that's happening because the price that solar can generate at is is uh, extremely competitive. It's extremely competitive with uh, natural gas fire generation, with coal generation, with nuclear generation, with wind power, um, uh, just about everything that's that's out there uh, that can be built new today. Um, and so the Berea project, I think, shows how incredibly quickly we've um, in, improved the ability to generate clean energy. Um, it it comes on the on the back of wind, which had its own incredible story. Um, but solar has much much broader application. Even it produces all the power that we need. You know, during the the middle of the day when our usage is is greatest and uh, um, I think if you, you know, project forward, what ends up uh, being apparent about the solar story is that the, the ability to generate power so cheaply with no emissions has turned out to be the most effective tool that we've come up with so far for reducing greenhouse gases. Um, and, uh, and I think we've got a lot more of that. And it really shows that when you put it together with other new technologies, wind, um, energy storage, um, other uh, potential solutions that are out there. New transmission is another one. Um, it's, a, it's really a pretty compelling package that we do have the tools that we need to make the progress that we need to make on emissions. Um, we just need to you know, figure out how to get there and find the political will. And I think those things are, are ultimately also within our grasp. But uh, but that's that's a bit of a different question. But that's where I find my optimism with this. Mm. So Berea, in a way, was emblematic of solar sort of finally being able to stand on its own two feet and, and compete in the market on an equal footing with, with conventional generation. If we zoom forward to today, I'm I'm curious that, you know, even, even though costs have come down pretty substantially over the past decade, uh, fully merchant solar, so solar with no offtake agreement is still... Uh, very much a minority is that mm -hmm. is that a fair assessment of the situation today yes um you know the point that i make in the book is that um uh berea's um emergence as a merchant plant um shows that it's it's the cheapest power that can be generated mm -hmm. um now whether that is the best way to build a solar project to finance a solar project um is a different question um uh you can you can get more efficient financing for any power generation project by having a, a contract in place from a from a customer to buy the output and as you say you know the the vast majority of solar projects being built today are um you know have a contract of one type or another um so the argument i was making in the book isn't that you know there should be a lot more merchant solar the argument in in the book is that um this is the solar has become the cheapest way to to generate and um and that's a good thing from a climate point of view there's also a lot about the story of how solar became that way uh that i think is is instructive for us about how to reach the rest of the goals that we have um on climate change um and and for other technologies uh, i would say too that you know, in the beginning of my career, your your average um, 
power generation project, whether it was wind or gas or whatever, uh, had a 20-year um, power purchase agreement with a, with a major utility. Um, most offtake agreements, uh, power purchase agreements, and other types of offtake agreements today are, are much shorter in, in uh, term. Um, have a, a variety of structures that are much more market oriented that share different parts of risk between the generator and the buyer. Um, not that many of, depending on which market you're in, not that many of the offtake agreements have uh, the customer as a, as a major utility. There are a variety of other counterparties out there, including you know, major corporate um, buyers, um, uh, trading houses, uh, banks providing hedge products and those kinds of things. And so um, another way to look at the merchant or not question is um, uh, I do think that a lot of offtake agreements have, have been sliding in the direction of much more market oriented, much more market exposure for the generator, um, which again, you know, I don't think you could, you could build those types of projects if the if the technology you were building wasn't producing extremely competitively priced power. So. Yeah, that's right. So it was more an argument about underlying economics rather than mm -hmm. about, you know, capital structural financing of take agreements yeah. per se. Uh, that makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about capitalism and climate change. It's, you know, it's in the subtitle of your book. And I think a central theme of, um, of what you wrote is that, you know, capitalism has an important role, not just in causing climate change, but, but also in combating it. I'm sure there are many people uh, listening that are fully on board with that sentiment, uh, perhaps others not so much. So what, what argument are you making here? Yeah, you know, a lot of um, the, the, uh, the challenge of addressing climate change comes down to hardware. Um, uh, the energy that we use every day, whether it's coming from the power plant, um, you know, coming from an internal combustion engine, um, uh, you know, we're uh, basically burning stuff, burning fossil fuels to uh, create um, uh, the heat or the expansive force that then uh, through a steam turbine or, or whatever, you know, ends up um, uh, creating electricity or creating power to, to get work done. So at, at that level, um, uh, a lot of the challenge that we have to um, address the emissions coming from all that hardware that we build uh, is about replacing that hardware, replacing that hardware and building all the new hardware that we need to meet increasing energy consumption that we that we forecast down the road. Um, and uh, and so really what we're looking at to make a lot of progress in reducing emissions is a giant infrastructure program. Um, infrastructure, you know, uh, like building roads and power plants and dams and that kind of thing. Um, today, more and more includes building the new types of power plants, building solar, building uh, wind, building energy storage projects, building transmission lines, all of those things. At that level, um, climate change can be thought of as not just an environmental problem, not just a political problem not just a, a, a social problem, um, but, uh, but a, a problem of capital, um, an infrastructure problem. The way that you solve an infrastructure problem is access to capital. And um, 
I think that uh, from that perspective, what we really need to do is find ways to attract the capital that we need to uh, bring the solution forward. Um, it's kind of crazy on the one hand to say that uh, if you if you recognize that um, the the capitalism that we have practiced, you know, not just in the United States and other developed countries, but you know, pretty much everywhere else around the world over the last X hundreds of years um, has created a lot of the emissions, has really driven the emissions that have us in the situation that we're in today. Uh, to then turn to that as, as a potential solution is uh, maybe, you know, counterintuitive. Um, but to the extent that uh, we have identified the ways to reduce emissions most effectively and that those ways are, are, you know, new ways of generating electricity that is so important to everything that we do that drives, you know, every, every economy that drives every one of our personal lives all through the day from the time we wake up through our, our work hours. Um, uh, you know, really, if we can change our capitalism, if we can kind of redirect it to be as effective at uh, bringing the solution forward as it has been in creating the problem. Um, I think from that perspective, it, it really can be an enormously beneficial tool, but it's, it's contingent upon us getting it pointed in the right direction, which is a very different direction than it's been in the past. Right. So part of, part of your argument, I think, is that it's, it's not markets per se that are the issue. It's things like, you know, not pricing in the cost of pollution. So, you know, one of the solutions you point to in the book is carbon pricing, you know, put a price on carbon, let markets do their thing and, and redirect the, the sort of positive forces of capitalism in a sense, like you just said. Uh, at the same time, I think it's fair to say we've made fairly little progress on carbon pricing, uh, over the last few years, especially anywhere near to its social cost. Are you still optimistic on that front? Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, carbon pricing is is really essential. Um, as, as you mentioned, it's really the main uh, correction to capitalism that, that needs to happen for capitalism to become, you know, a, a benefit in the and managing the the issues that we're facing uh, with climate change, um, uh, I think there has been a, a, a diverse level of support for um, putting a price on carbon politically. Um, most of, for instance, the uh, oil majors like Exxon Mobil, um, uh, you can read their 10K, and there's um, a, a good amount of. Um, uh, opinion expressed about the likelihood of a price on carbon at some point. Um, most major uh, tech corporations, I think, um, would uh, foresee some price on carbon happening at some point. I think most governments uh, have talked a lot about it and a lot of projections in the future about um, prices on carbon are, are, are you know, put forward and discussed. So I think it's one of those things that a, a wide and diverse group of um, important players on policy matters do foresee happening. The question is is when, and as you point out, you know there there's nothing on the uh, you know in the in the presidential campaigns or in the Congress or 
or elsewhere really to suggest that it's it's imminent. Um, I think that that is is one of the hardest things about where we stand on climate change today is that there's a lot of awareness about the problem. There's a lot of awareness about the actions that need to be taken to address it. Um, and yet there is not the political will today to, to go ahead and take those actions. Um, what is it going to take to, to get there? I, I do not have the, the answer to that question. I do um, worry that it's, it's taking us so long. I would also say that price on carbon is a, is a complicated tool. Um, uh, it, it, if not done properly, it could amount to a, a pretty regressive tax um, effectively. Um, and so I think that the way that a price on carbon uh, is put together and is, and is uh, designed from a policy point of view and communicated to people is extremely important and, and a huge part of how that political will is going to, it's going to happen. Um, I do think, though, that it it could be surprisingly easy to sell uh, down the road because um, some of the proposals, for instance, here in the U.S. are are about uh, basically you know replacing big parts of the income tax with a carbon tax, um, and so you could see a big reduction. You could see carbon dividends paid uh, to prevent the the regressive tax element of of a carbon tax. And those could be just such powerful policy directions, you know, redirecting the flow of of um, money in the economy away from things that are producing the emissions that are driving climate change and towards things that are creating the the solutions. Yeah, I, I think it's a good point around the distributional impact. It it seems to be one of the the challenges that a lot of people, if you ask them directly, care about climate change and and want to want something to be done but but when it comes to willingness to pay for it that you know the that's when the rubber really hits the road which speaks to the importance of you know continued tech innovation and, and making things cheap so i think one of the big success stories that you highlight in the book is the huge cost reduction we've seen in solar panels over the last few decades um, which you ascribe at least in part to the benefits of of globalization so you point to the us for its pioneering work early on in tech development uh, to Germany for driving demand for panels, and then to China for, for actually satisfying that demand with low cost production. I'm curious how much of that, you know, is, is this a story of the success of free markets and globalization, or is it is it a story of you know some combination of U.S. state funded innovation and, and Chinese industrial policy? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, the story of how photovoltaics came together. Um, that's that's told in the middle of the book is uh, I find it just so fascinating um, because so many different parts of the world had uh, such critical roles in the story, you know, over over the entire course of you know more than a hundred years. Um, I think the question of how it relates to globalism and how that has changed over the last, you know, decade or so and what that foretells about where we're going from here is is a is a really important um perspective on the whole thing uh i do think that um there there was something about the way that uh governments uh, 
around the world, particularly in Europe and the United States and and Asia and China in particular, um, were finding ways to uh, do business together, um, particularly in the 2000s and the early 2010s. That was just the the most momentous part of the price reduction that occurred in photovoltaics. As you mentioned, um, it was really some some pretty unique circumstances about the way the German solar market was designed that resulted in in uh, a soaring demand there. And it was demand so great that uh, the German manufacturers looked to, to China for ways to increase the supply and particularly the cheap supply of, of panels. And that kind of began a, uh, a pattern that was then accelerated when the financial crisis and the uh, Chinese government's response to that um, that that really prioritized solar as one of the big industries uh, for for growth. Um, what happened after that was uh, a um, a capturing of the economies of scale and manufacturing that that reduced year on year massive uh, price reductions in in solar panel manufacturing that then you know went out into the market and um, and and it's that that pattern that ended up. Uh, providing such an incredible price advantage for solar panels, you know, that um, that led to Berea and then that's led to the growth of solar since then. Um, parts of the world are, are interacting very differently today, obviously. And, um, you know, from one perspective, it's, it's quite understandable um, when you look at, at trade relations between the United States and China, for instance, there are uh, a lot of issues um, very credible issues around um, trade fairness and around, um, uh, you know, um, subsidization and how governments compete for for industries, um, technology transfer, um, you know, some some very real issues there. Um, from another perspective, if you're looking at the at the world through the lens of of climate change and greenhouse gas reduction. Um, uh, there's a case to be made that that what came up through all of this story of solar is a really efficient allocation of resources where um, Chinese government policy was able to put, you know, large amounts of Chinese taxpayer funds uh, to work um, internally to um, create, you know, uh, an availability of, of capital to manufacturers there that Created cheaper and cheaper panels that were then made available to the rest of the world. Um, from that perspective, you know um, what what solar panels ended up being was uh, an incredible, cheap, clean way to to generate uh, power in the United States and elsewhere. Um, that had as its at its source, you know, a large deployment of of um, taxpayer money uh, through Chinese industrial policy. Um, uh, you know where will things go from here, and and uh, in in the world that we're looking at, in the way that the United States and China are interacting, for instance, um, and in Europe as well. Uh, this is a a really important question because if we're if we're going to make the kind of progress that we need, there's an incredibly, you know, strong case to be made that um, the the world's biggest emitters between you know Europe. The United States and, and China, in particular, 
Uh, a number of other company countries are, are growing quickly in their emissions, but those really are the are the major contributors, both historically and today. Um, if if those countries can't work together to put their respective strengths to work um, to get the the things done that we need to get done, then then obviously success will be a lot harder. And so I think that uh, that the story of solar has a lot to say, you know, good and bad about uh, the ways that the different parties interacted um, uh, to end up with the the result, which was this extremely powerful, the most powerful tool that we've had to to reduce emissions. Um, and I think that you know one of my recommendations going forward is that no matter what the disputes are between uh, these major um, powers in the world, it would be ideal if we could find a way to segregate out our trade interactions on um, you know, proven well-known technologies that are really effective at reducing, um, reducing greenhouse gases. Um, it would be good to, to separate those out so we can continue to get things done that we need to get done on that front even as we sort out the other conflicts that we have with each other around the world. Mm. I'm, I'm curious how you, you think about the IRA in this context, the Inflation Reduction Act. So, you know, for me, one of the most significant aspects of the IRA is that it signals something of a shift in U.S. policy away from globalization and you know, benefiting from the global specialization and competitive benefits that, that you're talking about and towards a more nationally focused industrial policy. So in essence, implicit in the IRA is the willingness to trade off, I suppose, some degree of economic efficiency in support of domestic labor, domestic manufacturing, and you know, presumably slightly higher costs that will come with that. Do you think that's the, the right trade-off to be making? Yeah. Um... I think there is so much great about the Inflation Reduction Act, um, you know, coming out of COVID in particular and the supply chain disruptions that affected every major industry around the world. Um, one of the IRA's biggest effects is uh, is in really um, improving the the supply chain for major equipment in the in the energy sector and particularly for, um, you know, for the the energy being built at the quickest rate. Um, as, as I've said, you know, that's a lot of solar, a lot of wind, a lot of batteries. Uh, there's a lot in the IRA as well to help um, nuclear power continue on. Um, uh, there's so much done there that is going to be really, really effective at helping these uh, major technologies proceed and, and get constructed. Um, I think that part of it is, is really wonderful. I think the parts of the, the legislation that um, uh, take a, a, a very thoughtful approach to um, increasing the uh, the demand for manufacturing here in the United States and manufacturing in our in our close allies is also really valuable and a really important part of of the legislation. Um, uh, all of that is is really great, and I think also from a from a tax incentive point of view, getting the the in investment tax credits and production tax credits with a good long window is really wonderful. Um, as you note, though, I think there is also a, a nationalistic 
uh, aspect to the legislation. And I think that that's, that's a great feature in many ways because it, it does emphasize the, the benefit for, you know, growing manufacturing jobs here in the U.S. and a lot of the equipment that we need to be, um, you know, deploying here. Uh, it being available to buy from uh, factories here in the U.S. is is uh, is a is a really great you know uh, achievement of the legislation. Um, to some degree, though, it's uh, it's it's expecting that we can create factories here kind of overnight or in a short period of time that are are going to be um, immediately competitive with uh, facilities that you know have years you know, if not a decade or more of, um, of lead time uh, elsewhere in the world. And so how well are these manufacturing facilities here going to be able to compete with um, more, you know, established competitors? I think that's really central to the, to the purpose of the legislation. Um, I think we've got a, a great opportunity to get that done. Um, and I'm, we're, you know, for instance, at Jupiter, we're very eager to secure our our domestic supply um, agreements for new battery equipment. And if you look across the United States, there's a huge number of battery manufacturing plants that are that are in in process in one stage or another. Um, but I think, you know, to the extent that we have such problems agreeing on on policy directions at the political level. When it comes to climate change, I think that um, that that business and and uh, corporate progress has been a way kind of around those fights. I think that uh, that renewables being the cheapest way to get energy has allowed us to make a lot of progress, irrespective of the of the political um, divide, and uh, and that really relies on this equipment driving the, the case, it, it being the cheapest solution out there. We're securing all the advantages of, of clean energy um, without having to, you know, have a debate about whether climate change is real or, you know, what kind of level of progress we should be making. To the extent we um, are, are seeing with the IRA uh, ways to keep this equipment being the the cheapest that it can be, I think I think that's a, a huge benefit. Um, if what we're heading to is more of a go it alone, and every nation is going to manufacture its own equipment and forego the benefits of equipment available from elsewhere, um, I think that would be heading us in the wrong direction. I I think that's a good point. Um, just to touch briefly on battery storage in the US, you know, Jupiter is growing quickly. How are you seeing the market in the US right now? I suppose Kaiso and ERCOT are probably the most attractive markets for US batteries today. Where's the next wave of investment coming? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely Kaiso has been the leader. I think um the the energy storage business has has really grown there very substantially. ERCOT has come on uh, more recently, and um, the level of growth of energy storage here in in ERCOT has has been extraordinary. Um, at Jupiter, we do development all across the country. Uh, you know, we have certain markets that we're more focused on than others. Um, 
but um, but we really see storage as as growing uh, pretty consistently um, across just about all markets, and the reason why is really you know has to do with the same dynamic that we've been discussing so far. You know, the more renewables that that get out there, the the greater the value of something that can that can store some of that power on a on a particularly windy or you know during the sunniest part of the day and that can then make that that power available you know at a at a time when it's not windy or it's not sunny um the other factor that's driving uh energy storage not just in ERCOT and California but elsewhere is that we've basically been seeing um kind of an inversion of the transmission system over the last 20 years or so it used to be that in in a major city you had power plants around that city that served the needs of the city and uh and you had power lines connecting to other big load pockets other big cities and their power plants and that's the way that our our grid came together originally um what we've been seeing with the the energy transition is we've been seeing more and more generation coming from remote areas from renewables from solar and wind projects that are not in downtown uh in a downtown metropolis and and we've been seeing the um the thermal plants in the big load pockets uh become less competitive and and many of them have been closing down and so what you're seeing in a lot of these big load pockets is is a loss of generation that um uh that the economic case for the way it's been generated hasn't hasn't been strong um and yet there's still a need for generation in those big load pockets and so there's a real opportunity for storage to grow as as kind of the the backup power and the the regular um filling in of the gaps for renewables coming in from afar um and managing the transmission constraints between um uh, a lot of the generation that's coming from remote areas into into big cities and other big load pockets so over time we're seeing the same factors that are driving the energy transition um, as driving a an increasing need and an increasing market for energy storage and we would see that is happening you know more or less in in all the grids around the country over you know it's kind of the question is what would be the period of time that that opportunity would emerge i, I think that's right it's it's hard to overstate just how much the storage market is booming in the US right now, probably 50% of our projects over the last uh, 24 mm -hmm. months have been have been storage transactions. So uh, certainly um, one to keep an eye on. Um, one of the ways we sometimes like to wrap up these episodes is with a quick fire round of under or overrated. I'm going to quickly list four things uh, and you uh, Andy will tell me if you think they're under or overrated. Um, so first up is the chances of repeal of the Inflation Reduction Act? I think this is underrated. I think that we're looking at a um, at you know an uncertain politics over the next over the next year, obviously, and it's already been an objective of uh, the the majority in the House to um, repeal it. And um, I don't think it's likely, but I think it's it's an underrated concern. Uh, I'd like to talk more about that one, but it's a whole separate podcast. Uh, <laughs> second uh, is the nuclear renaissance. Um, 
I think that it is overrated. I think that it's very expensive, complicated power. And I feel like the, uh, the room to run that we have between other well-known technologies like wind and solar and storage now are, are much superior and have many advantages over it. So I think it's overrated. Mm. Uh, on a similar technology note, uh, offshore wind in the U.S.? Offshore wind, I've had a lot of exposure to in Europe, where it seems to make a great deal of sense, obviously, with all the projects that have been built. In the United States, it's such a different situation with so much uh, available onshore resource um, that I I see it as, as overrated. Mm. And finally, uh, the likelihood of further power market expansion or liberalization in the U.S.? I see that as underrated. I feel like even as we've just seen with Ameren, uh, considering leaving MISO for PJM, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of change afoot. I don't know how much market liberalization we're going to be seeing, but I do think there's going to be a lot of changes, grid reform that are going to make things easier for the kinds of change with among generators in particular that we've been seeing to accelerate. Certainly, again, one to keep an eye on, and uh, maybe we'll get you back on the podcast uh, to talk about uh, IRA repeal if and when that comes up. Well, Oof. thanks very much, hope Andy. Re- I, I hope not, too. Uh, I, thanks so much for your time today. I think that's a great place to wrap up, uh, and thank you to everyone for listening. Very good. Thank you so much for having me. That was Oliver Kerr, Aurora's Managing Director for North America, talking to Andy Bowman, CEO of Jupiter Power. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.